A woman was gunned down while crossing the street and all evidence pointed in one direction. But could a brilliant, detail-oriented person with a PhD be capable of such a sloppy cover-up? Spoiler, yes he can. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to Crime Lions. I'm so glad you are joining us today. I was recently at the True Crime Podcast Festival here in Kansas City, and I got to see some of my old friends like Nina from Already Gone and Josh from True Crime BS. I haven't seen them in forever. And I also got to meet some new people and some shows that I think you should check out that I've started listening to. You know, I only recommend shows that I myself am listening to. The first is Defense Diaries. The host is Bob Mata, and he's an attorney whose father was one of John Wayne Gacy's defense attorneys. He has around 15 hours of tapes that his father gave him that have never been heard before. So it is a new look at an old case, which is something I really like. The other podcast I found at the True Crime Podcast Festival is called Southern Gothic, And if you like shows like Pleasing Terrors or The Conspirators or even Lore, I think this is one you'll love. The host is an audio guy, so you will be very immersed in the story. I will put the names of these two shows in the description box so you can check them out. And then I wanted to announce that I'm going to be in Savannah, Georgia. Coming up, I will be at the Savannah Crime Expo on September 25th. I will leave a link in the description to get your tickets. Dr. Henry Lee is one of the many experts speaking, and they're also going to have a podcast row. So I really hope I will see you there. So enough housekeeping. Let's get into this case. This was suggested by Nate, and I want to thank him for sending it over. In 2002, 38-year-old Preta Gaba married 51-year-old Baldeo Tanasia in their native India, They had both been married before, and they both had children. Baldeo had two, and Prita had one. Prita had grown up in an orphanage, and when she met her first husband, Paul, in 1990, they immediately connected because Paul's parents had also died when he was an infant, though he had been adopted by some neighbors. So he didn't grow up without a family unit like Prita had. They married soon after meeting, and the following year, their son, Lim, was born. When Lim was about six, which would have been 1997 or so, Prita left her husband, and she had to work long hours trying to provide for Lim on just her own pay. At some point after she met her second husband, Baldeo, and around the time they got married, Lim's father died of liver disease. Lim was not quite 10 years old. Prita's goal in life was to support her son and give him that stability that he needed to be able to get farther in life than she did. And Baldeo Tanasia seemed like a good man, both as a provider, but also as a father figure for Lim. He was a biostatistician with a PhD from Ohio University, He worked not only in this field, but he also ran successful Amway businesses in both India and the United States. For those who don't know, Amway is a multi-level marketing company and the butt of many, many jokes, mostly aimed at the reputation some members have for enthusiastic recruiting practices. At the end of the day, Baldeo was successful, and he offered Prita and Lim an easier life than they had before. After Lim's father died, they didn't have family keeping them in India. So Baldeo, who already lived part-time in the U.S., decided to move to the States full-time in 2006. The plan was for Prita and Lim to move with him after the immigration process was completed, It would turn out to be around three years before that happened. They ended up settling in Germantown, Maryland, which is about 45 minutes outside of Washington, D.C. Somewhere before Prita and Lim moved to the United States, Lim went by himself on a trip to visit his stepdad 
and to see the area he would soon be moving to. And while he was there, he noticed there was another woman living in Baldeo's home, a woman named Reminder Kaur. At this point, Lim was a teenager. He could see something was going on. When he went back home to India, he told his mother about it. Lim was not privy to his mother and Baldeo's private discussions on the matter, so we don't know the resolution. All we know is that it was smoothed out enough for Prita to move with Lim to Maryland in 2009. Shortly after arriving here, Prita demanded a divorce. After three years of being separated through that immigration red tape, Baldeo didn't stop seeing Reminder and focus on his wife now that they're finally reunited. He continued his extramarital relationship, and that was not what Prita had signed up for. In 2010, Prita filed for divorce, and calling this a contentious divorce would be an understatement, which is a little shocking since they didn't have much joint property or children together to fight over. They hadn't even lived together for three years. And while Baldeo did have a comfortable six-figure income, we aren't talking millions at stake here. Most of the aggression was Baldeo towards Prita, even though it was his decision to start a relationship with another woman that caused the divorce. Both sides made claims of abuse, with Prita saying Baldeo was physically abusive and Baldeo saying that Prita was controlling. And it's funny he would use a word like controlling when Baldeo was the one who had people follow and spy on Prita, including enlisting Reminder and his own son for the task. They even had a spy-like code name for their target. They called Prita the Dragon Lady, a name no one who knew her would have ever used. Prita was known for being a kind, hardworking, fun, and all-around lovely person. Baldeo, on the other hand, did not show a kind side to himself during this divorce. He once had a reminder stalk Prita through a Walmart and report back what she was doing. Imagine your current partner wanting you to creep around a Walmart and note what his wife is buying. It's not clear what Baldeo thought he was going to find out here, but there were no divorce case bombshells, so whatever he found wasn't much. According to Lim, Prita was aware some of this was going on. But having his girlfriend and son follow his wife around wasn't even the most shocking thing Baldeo did. At one point during the divorce, Prita moved out of the condo they shared, acquiescing to a demand of Baldeo's, even though Baldeo already had a place he was living with Reminder, he still wanted Prita to move out. But then Prita got a court order allowing her re-entry into the home. In the time she was gone from that place, Baldeo built a wall, a framed sheetrocked wall that blocked her access to any room except her bedroom, She could go in the front door and walk to her room. That was it. Everything else was walled off. Eventually, the two settled their divorce in 2011. Like I said, there wasn't much to deal with because of how little they shared. Baldeo kept all interest in their Amway business that they had run jointly in India, and Prita was given ownership of an apartment that they owned in India. Additionally, Baldeo would pay $2,400 a month in alimony for three years, giving Prita some time to get on her feet here in a new country. According to Baldeo's divorce attorney, Baldeo was happy with this settlement. After the divorce was final, Baldeo married Reminder and the two moved to Nashville, Tennessee for Baldeo's work. At this point, Living nearly 700 miles apart, Baldeo and Prita could just move on. But that didn't happen 
Do you know how many Crime Lines episodes could have been avoided by people just moving on? Instead of doing that, Baldeo didn't follow through with the one bit of paperwork he had to do, which was transferring the property in India over to Prita. It would have been easy enough of a transaction, but it was something he had that Prita wanted, so that might explain his reluctance. And then Raminder's son sued Prita. He said that he had stored some things at the condo with his mother while he was deployed to Kuwait. At some point after Prita moved in, he claimed she either threw out or destroyed his items. The case was dismissed by the judge less than a year after it was filed. And then we have this alimony, the one way Baldeo couldn't move on. For a couple of years, he paid it without issue. Both Prita and Lim were working, and things were starting to stabilize. With Lim out of high school, Prita was looking at going to the local community college in the hope that she could get an education that would lead to a better-paying job and would help Lim then get his education. At the time, Prita was doing clerical-type work for about $10 an hour, which isn't a lot to support yourself or anyone else on living that close to Washington, D.C. Prita did what she could to save money, like taking the bus rather than owning a car, and she was hoping with her new education she could go into the medical field. But in late 2012, Baldeo was laid off from his job, and the first place he decided to cut back was, of course, the alimony payment. In February 2013, he was three months behind, and Prita emailed him to demand that he pay what was owed. Baldeo sent emails back calling Prita a parasite. Prita's attorney filed a contempt petition to compel Baldeo to pay after he was around $10,000 behind, which would have been four or five months. In return, Baldeo filed a counterclaim for $100,000 for who knows what. The hearing on this was scheduled for October 10th, 2013, but the attorneys agreed to a continuance. Baldeo said he would pay the arrears within 90 days, and then if he did that, Prita would drop the case. If he didn't pay it back, the case would continue. At this point, Baldeo only had a few more months of paying alimony to go. He was getting close to that three-year mark. Pay the arrears, pay for a few months past to that, and then he could, once and for all, move on. And making around $150,000 a year or more, it was within his capabilities to pay it. But what did I say? Moving on doesn't get your divorce case aired out on my podcast. Several days after the agreement was reached to give Baldeo three months to pay up on what he owed, on Saturday, October 12th, 2013, 49-year-old Prita Gabba left her apartment to walk to the bus stop. She left around 7.45 so that she could catch the bus in time to go to work. Lim was awake when his mother left because he also had to work that day, but he didn't have to leave until later. According to two eyewitnesses, a woman and her son who were driving down the street, they heard a series of pops. Right in front of them, they saw two women. One was crossing the street in the middle of the block, and the other woman was right behind her. The woman in front fell to the ground, and the other took off running. The two witnesses in the car obviously stopped the car, ran out to her, called 911. When they got to Prita, she was unconscious. She had been shot three times in the back, the chest, and the stomach. The witnesses said that the woman who ran away was slightly taller than Prita, she had dark hair, and she was wearing a bright-colored scarf. They identified the woman who ran away as a black woman. However, they also said that Prita was black when she was Indian. 
so it was likely an issue of just seeing medium to deep skin tones and then assuming race. Another witness was a man who lived in a nearby apartment. He also heard the shots, and he looked out his window. He saw Prita on the ground and noticed that the woman who ran away had a slight limp. Prita was transported to the hospital while the police identified her through the contents of her bag. They realized the address on her ID was very close by, so they walked over to her apartment. When they knocked on the door, Lim answered. They first asked him if he had heard anything, had he heard any shots. He said he hadn't. He had actually been in the shower at the time his mother was gunned down. They showed Lim Prita's ID, and he said, yes, that's my mom. And they could see from the family pictures all over the apartment that they were in the right place. They told Lim that Prita had been shot, and they would drive him to the hospital to be with her. As he walked out of the building to get into the officer's car, he could see his mother's things in the road where they fell. Unfortunately, by the time Lim got to the hospital, it was too late. Prita Gabba died at 49 years old. Lim, in a state of shock and grief, was questioned about his mother and about any enemies she may have, and he said he could only think of one, his stepfather, 62-year-old Baldeo Tanasia. But the witnesses said that they saw a woman commit the crime, and they didn't give any indication that this looked like a man in disguise. It was possible, but it was not what the witnesses perceived. It was a lead, and they immediately followed up on it. After doing some background on Baldeo, they tried to call him around 3.30 p.m. for the first time. That call and every subsequent call went straight to voicemail. Working with the police in Nashville, where Baldeo lived, they learned that Baldeo had recently purchased two guns. Recently, as in two weeks before the murder. On September 28th, one was a 357 Ruger LCR. Baldeo also bought ammunition for both of the guns and a holster for the 357. This perked investigators' ears up because that gun could have shot the bullets found at the scene. Baldeo bought the guns from a Nashville gun shop. Unlike every gas station case we've ever covered, Gun shops tend to have very good security cameras, and this one was no exception. The owner showed the police the crystal clear footage from that purchase, and Baldeo was not alone. He was with his wife, Raminda Kaur. So maybe the killer wasn't Baldeo in disguise. Maybe the killer was, in fact, his new wife. The police moved fast on this. It was less than 36 hours after the homicide that they had search warrants for Baldeo and Reminder's car and their home, and they also had arrest warrants for both of them. At 2 p.m. on Sunday, October 13th, as Baldeo and Reminder drove away from their apartment in Nashville, the police pulled them over and arrested them. And for someone allegedly as smart as Baldeo Tanasia, man, did they leave behind a lot of evidence. Let's start with the car. Both of the guns Baldeo had purchased were in the car. One of them, the 357, would be identified as the murder weapon when markings from test firings matched the bullets at the crime scene. They also found hair dye in the car and more than $3,600 in cash, making the authorities wonder if this couple was about to go on the run. Another thing found was a black wig with streaks of gray. The packaging the wig was in was from a Nashville area costume shop. 
but the wig in the package didn't go with the package. So basically, they had a wig and they had a package for another wig, which they did not find the other wig. So we have two wigs here, but one was missing. Now, here's something they found that I would love to hear some opinions on what you think it could mean. Inside Reminder's purse was a handwritten note saying, you calm down. We are now in Tennessee near my home. This was in her handwriting. Why did she write that? Who was it for? Was she slipping a note to Baldeo for some reason? But why would she say we're near my home and not near our home? Or was this a note to herself, like she was journaling a little meditation to calm herself down? I don't know. You can let me know what you think about this note. There was a piece of writing that was less ambiguous found. Inside Baldeo's wallet, they found a piece of paper with Prita's address on it, and it was also in Reminder's handwriting. Another huge piece of evidence in the car was the GPS unit. Combining that with cell phone records, the police were able to put together quite the timeline of movements. On October 11th, the night before the murder, Baldeo's cell phone placed him driving through Virginia into Maryland. He then checked into a Red Roof Inn at about 7 p.m. This was just eight miles from Prita's home. According to the hotel clerk, there was a woman with him who fit Reminder's general description. All was quiet on the cell phones and the GPS until 9.58 the next morning, two hours after the shooting. At this point, the GPS showed the car traveling into D.C. At 10.44 a.m., Baldeo bought tickets to an Amway convention that was in Washington, D.C., They had been expected to be there the night before on the 11th when it started, but they didn't enter the conference until 11.37 a.m. on the 12th. They talked with some friends, and then a short time later, a friend texted Baldeo to see if he wanted to meet up for lunch. Baldeo replied that Reminder wasn't feeling well, so he wouldn't be able to. The GPS then showed the car leaving D.C., shortly after noon, less than 45 minutes after they arrived at the convention. They drove several hours before stopping for the night outside of Knoxville, Tennessee. The next morning, around 9.30, they left again and arrived home around noon. Two hours later, the police arrested them as they left their house again. The GPS also showed that a week before the killing, someone in that car traveled up to Germantown, and the police believed this was basically recon. They wanted to see Prita's Saturday schedule and habits so they would know when they would have access to her to commit this murder. In addition to searching the car, the authorities also searched Reminder and Baldeo's apartment. Inside, they found court documents that Reminder put a note on that said Dragon Story and other court documents. They also found a notebook in which someone wrote, No Brass, No Evidence. Now that was not in Reminder's handwriting. So a picture was coming into focus. Reminder and Baldeo resented Prita. Maybe they even hated her. They had 90 days to come up with several thousand dollars to pay her back and then still had another about 10 to 14,000 on top of that in alimony payments before the three years were over. Maybe they could afford it, but do you want to give over $20,000 to someone you call the dragon lady? Even if you could afford it, would you want to? So the motive here was pretty clear, and so was the evidence. It was all in that vehicle. We have the murder weapon and a tattletale GPS unit. One of the two people in that car shot and killed Prita. Witnesses only saw one person. Now, if they were both in on it, it didn't matter who pulled the trigger. In the eyes of the law, they were both just as guilty if they were both involved. 
But there would have been automatic reasonable doubt here if they decided to each claim that the other one did it without their help or without their knowledge. Let's look at the cases for each of them being the shooter, because honestly, I feel that this point remains unresolved all these years later. This is an unsolved mystery within this case. The case for Reminder being the shooter. The witnesses said they saw a woman. One of the witnesses noticed that the shooter had a slight limp, and so did Reminder. However, the only forensic evidence leans towards Baldeo being the shooter. Reminder's DNA was not found on the gun, but Baldeo's was. That could have been because he cleaned the gun after the murder. He may have wiped off Reminder's fingerprints and DNA while accidentally leaving his own DNA behind. The witnesses also said that the shooter was taller than Preda, which Reminder wasn't, and Baldeo was. But honestly, that could have been the angle at how they saw them, or even just how they were standing in the street. Roads are not flat. They slope slightly for drainage. If the shooter was near the middle of the road and Preda was closer to the edge, which is what it sounds like the witnesses saw, the shooter may appear taller because they are on slightly higher ground. There are also these very cool things called heels on shoes. Many women utilize them. A heeled shoe could have made Reminder look taller than Preda. So I don't find the height thing very persuasive. There is one thing in the category of Baldeo as the shooter that I'm not going to discount in the next breath like I have been doing. About five weeks before Preda's murder, Baldeo attended a gun training class in Tennessee. It was four hours of instruction, followed by four hours of practice at the shooting range. Tennessee requires this eight-hour class to obtain a handgun carry permit if you don't already have training, like law enforcement or military training. This permit is not required to buy a handgun, and someone planning to carry out a murder is not going to be too concerned with making sure they're carrying that gun legally. So the investigators believed that Baldeo's actual intention for taking this class was to genuinely learn how to shoot the gun so that he could more effectively kill his ex. Reminder did go to the class with him. The two entered and sat in the back, but Reminder hadn't paid for a spot, so the instructor asked her to leave. When she did, Baldeo moved to the front of the room and according to this instructor, took a lot of notes. So Baldeo's DNA was on the gun, he took the lessons, and he was the one who bought the gun. He was also taller than Preda, like witnesses saw. On the other hand, Reminder had a slight limp, like one of the witnesses noted. And all three of the witnesses believe the shooter was a woman. I just don't know that Baldeo's build even with a scarf and a wig, would leave witnesses too convinced this was definitely a woman. But again, they did see the shooter at a bit of a distance. At the end of the day, it didn't matter since the state's case was that they were in on it together. This is just me wondering out loud. Baldeo Tanasia and Raminda Kaur were both charged with first-degree murder conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, and the use of a handgun in a crime of violence. They were tried jointly in the summer of 2014. I was personally surprised to hear this would have been a joint trial, but their initial defense strategies did not involve throwing each other under the bus. Instead, they argued that neither of them did it, so the joint trial in that light doesn't seem like it would have been that big of a conflict. The theory the prosecutor presented to the jury was that Reminder was the shooter, but that Baldeo was right by her side every step of the way, even if he wasn't literally by her side when the gun was fired. They walked the jury through the timeline, showing that from the shooting class to buying the gun to traveling to Maryland— 
the two were together. They did say it didn't matter which one pulled the trigger because they were both in on it, but they did think it was Reminder. So here's my little theory on that. A little speculation. I think the prosecutor put forth Reminder as the shooter because they actually didn't have as much evidence connecting her to the crime. And her attorney was quick to jump on that. Everything pointed more strongly to Baldeo. So I think the prosecution wanted to tie her as the shooter to shoo away any of the jurors' doubts about what Reminder actually knew or how involved she was. That's just a little trial strategy speculation on my part. Because we have two defendants here, we also have two defense teams and two defense strategies, so let's take them one at a time. Reminder was using the public defender's office and was assigned as lead defense attorney a very experienced and well-respected attorney named Alan Drew. However, Alan was juggling 88 felony cases that summer. There were times he would have to leave one courtroom to appear in another on a different case. His caseload is very important to note here. So Reminder's defense was basically to just distance herself from the murder. She didn't outright blame Baldeo, but her attorney did tell the jury to consider the culture she grew up in and the culture of her marriage. Baldeo was domineering, and Reminder believed her role was to submit to and sacrifice for her husband. Alan Drew was clear to say he didn't mean that Reminder was forced to commit a crime for her husband, but rather she knew her place in the marriage, and that was to serve her husband and not ask questions. Reminder's presence at the gun store or her accompanying Baldeo to the class didn't mean she was part of a conspiracy. She would have gone if her husband wanted her to. Showing up late to the Amway convention, staying 45 minutes, and leaving again? Also things Reminder would do without question if her husband asked it of her. With opening statements, that seemed to be the strategy Reminder's defense was going to go with. She just didn't know what was going on. Not saying Baldeo did it, not saying he didn't do it, just saying her actions didn't lead to a conspiracy charge. Then the defense, however, shifted over the course of the trial to claim it was actually another woman with Baldeo at the training class and blamed an employee of Baldeo's casting her as a possible alternative suspect. But the state found that woman, she was working in Boston at the time, and pulled her into court to testify. She was cleared from any involvement in the murder right there in front of the jury. That was a huge risk to name an alternative suspect without having investigated her thoroughly. Because the state did, and they were able to shoot down that theory right in front of the jury, which is frankly embarrassing. So why didn't Alan Drew investigate this woman before bringing her name up in court? I think I answered this already when I mentioned he had over 80 felony cases he was actively working on leading up to Preda's trial. He didn't investigate her because he didn't have the time. So by closing statements, they were back to there just being no evidence directly linking Reminder to the murder, and that was going to be the long and short of their case. So on to Baldeo's defense. He did not qualify for a public defender due to his income, so he hired a private attorney who had more control over his own caseload. Baldeo's approach was to tell the jury that he was too smart to have carried out such an incompetent cover-up. If he did this, Baldeo would know he would be the prime suspect, so why would he have left a million clues behind? They really leaned into this, saying not only was he smart, he was a biostatistician, that is an incredibly detail-oriented field. So would someone like that, who cared about details and would think of everything, leave so much evidence behind? I think it's an interesting tactic to fight the evidence against your client by saying he was too smart to have screwed up so royally. 
They did explain some of the evidence, of course, like the guns in the car. They were there because Baldeo was headed to the gun range to do some target practice. This was a newly acquired hobby of his, completely unrelated to a murder. That's all. The ballistics were wrong, and it wasn't the murder weapon. Even going to the Amway convention to give an excuse for being in the area was brushed off by the defense. Of course it wasn't an attempt at an alibi because they didn't even check in until hours after the murder. They really did have benign reasons to be near Prita's home around the time of her murder, then go to D.C., pay for tickets, and leave after 45 minutes. It couldn't have anything to do with the murder because Baldea was frankly intelligent enough to come up with a better plan if it was him. If I ever go on trial for anything, I really do want this to be my defense, that I'm smart enough that if I did this, I would have gotten away with it. That is a very bold claim. But Baldeo did want to present more than just his big brain energy to the jury. He had an alternative suspect in mind, and it was Reminder son Pinder. This was the same son who sued Prita for getting rid of his things, and he lost that lawsuit in 2011 when it was dismissed. Pinder was in Germantown on the day of the murder, but he was also there every other day because he lived in Germantown. Baldeo also had his son willing to testify that during the lawsuit with Prita, Pinder said something about how someone ought to kill Prita. The judge ended up not allowing in any of this testimony because the tie between Prita and Pinder ended two and a half years before the murder. Pinder had nothing to gain from her death, and his motive was pretty weak at this point. There was no actual evidence Pinder had anything to do with it. So the jury never heard any of it, and in the end, they found both Baldeo Tanasia and Raminda Kaur guilty of murder and conspiracy to commit murder, and they were both given life sentences. And then the public defender's office immediately moved for a new trial for Reminder, admitting that their own attorney, Alan Drew, had provided ineffective assistance of counsel. It had come out that towards the end of the trial, Reminder pulled Alan Drew aside and told him that while she and Baldeo were in a transport vehicle going from the courthouse to the jail, Baldeo confessed to her. He told her that he carried out the murder after giving Reminder some sort of drug that kept her asleep at the hotel. While she was sleeping, he disguised himself as a woman, slipped out, and killed Prita. Reminder told her attorney that she wanted to testify about what Baldeo said in her own defense, about how she didn't know he had the guns with him on their trip, how it was his idea to stay at the Red Roof Inn, and it was his idea when to show up at the conference and when to leave. Drew told Reminder that because this was a joint trial, Baldeo could prevent her from testifying, and he didn't think the court would permit it given the content of her potential testimony. And maybe he was right. Maybe Reminder would not have been able to testify to this conversation, but that was a matter for the court to decide, and Reminder believed that she was being told by her lawyer that she wasn't allowed to testify. The judge hearing this motion agreed that this was a major error. The judge did not call out Alan Drew in his decision, but rather the demands of the public defender's office and the system that makes it necessary for someone to have 88 other felony cases on their desk while preparing for a murder trial. No lawyer, not even one as talented, intelligent, and hardworking as Alan Drew, could have been prepared for the trial under those circumstances. The judge said that he didn't know what Alan Drew's actual words to Reminder were. Did he say point blank, you cannot testify? That's unlikely. Did he say, I don't think the judge will allow it, meaning the testimony about Baldeo and Reminder interpreted it to mean all of her testimony? Either way, 
Reminder got the message she could not testify. She waived the right to testify without fully understanding what she was waiving. They couldn't go back in time and let Reminder testify, so the only remedy would be to give her a new trial. So that's what she got. And the state began preparing again. But Reminder wanted a new prosecution team to try the case because the current one saw too much of her previous defense case. In order to raise an ineffective assistance of counsel claim, you sometimes have to waive your attorney-client privilege to some degree to cover the points where you say your counsel was ineffective, particularly in a situation like this, where one of Reminder's complaints had to do with a private conversation. There's no way to say, my lawyer and I talked about something, he was wrong, but no, you can't hear the details. The waiving of the attorney-client privilege is limited to the appeal proceedings and to the claims you've made. It doesn't mean the state gets every detail. Usually, this was not a usual case. In this instance, the court ordered the defense to turn over everything, their entire case file and the personnel records of the public defender. This was, according to the court, because Reminder's ineffective assistance of counsel claims were so broad that the state needed access to pretty much everything to argue against it. Well, Reminder not testifying was the part of the claim that got her the new trial, it wasn't her only claim in regards to ineffective assistance of counsel. And that's just a necessary part of a direct appeal. You have to argue all of the known trial errors at the earliest opportunity, or you can't raise them again in a future appeal. So she had to throw in the kitchen sink. But her claim wasn't tightly worded because, frankly, her claim was the entire preparation of the case proved ineffective assistance of counsel. So for the state to argue against that, they needed to see the entire preparation of the case. So now the prosecution was going into trial number two, knowing all of the alternative defense strategies that hadn't been used at the first trial but were discussed. They knew everything Reminder had told her attorney, giving them quite the advantage in court. Had the state gotten the same exact information through unlawful means, the case law is clear they would have been off the case and a new prosecutor assigned, or if it was believed that wouldn't remedy it, the case would have been thrown out. But this was a lawful access. The court gave them the files. There isn't a lot of case law for this, and the judge allowed the original prosecution team to stay on for trial number two. I will say, the prosecution's case was not that much different from the first go-round. So the argument that they used the information from the original files from trial one against Remender in trial number two isn't really cut and dry. As for the defense, their strategy this time around was to put the blame solely on Baldeo. He snuck off, he murdered Prita, and Reminder had no knowledge of it. And though Reminder's initial appeal was granted based on her desire to testify and that right being effectively denied to her, Reminder did not testify in the second trial. A prosecutor in a Crime Watch Daily interview indicated that he thought this showed the basis of the appeal was essentially a trick to get a new trial. If the whole thing was that Reminder wanted to testify so badly, why didn't she testify? Now, the outcome at this trial was the same as the last. Reminder was found guilty for a second time, and she, of course, appealed again. This appeal largely had to do with the prosecution team. Reminder didn't feel she could testify at the second trial because the prosecution would have an unfair advantage in cross-examining her. They had seen her private communications with her previous attorney. This issue is definitely one worth exploring, in my view, but it didn't go far with the appellate court because Reminder did raise this concern at trial. The trial judge said they would set up boundaries on what the state could ask on cross-examination to prevent them from having the advantage from those files. 
Whether those perimeters would have been enough, I don't know. And the court doesn't know because Reminder didn't testify. In an appeal, you can't just say you were prejudiced by something. You have to say how. You have to say what it was. And since Reminder did not accept the trial court's remedy for her testifying, the appellate court didn't have anything to rule on because nothing happened. She hadn't been prejudiced because she chose not to testify. Because the state's case at both trials was nearly the same, it really did look like they used very little information from the file. The most notable way the second trial differed actually benefited Reminder, according to the appellate court. The state called a new witness. They called an employee from the store where one of the wigs was purchased. He confirmed the wig was purchased in his store. That's pretty much all he said on direct. On cross, however, the employee said the wig wasn't marked unisex like most wigs. It was labeled as being intended for a man. He also said the receipt indicated other items were purchased at the same time, including olive beige face makeup. Reminder's skin tone was already near that tone. Baldeo, on the other hand, was fairer. Reminder wouldn't use that color to alter her appearance, but Baldeo might. He may have done that to appear darker. So the costume store employee's testimony on cross-examination actually supported the idea this was Baldeo and not Reminder as the shooter. If Baldeo was the shooter, if, 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 he would have dressed as a woman using makeup to look like he had a deeper skin tone, closer to Reminder's skin tone, and would have even showed a little limp when he ran away. It sounds to me that if Baldeo was the shooter, if, he actually set this up, that Reminder would take the fall should there be any witnesses. That's what this evidence tells me if we're looking at this from the viewpoint of Baldeo, being the shooter, but we don't know. Reminder's appeal was denied, but she kept appealing right up to the Supreme Court. In 2020, the court actually showed interest in taking the case. The Supreme Court generally only takes cases that have broad application to more than just the one person. They're more concerned with clarifying laws and legal issues. While the court ultimately decided not to hear Reminder's appeal, They didn't do so without comment. Justice Sonia Sotomayor commented that the prosecutor's failure to recuse casts a troubling and unnecessary shadow over this conviction and life sentence. She said that even though the state's case wasn't significantly different at the second trial, the prosecution may not even be aware of how their knowledge of the defense communications with Reminder affected how they presented the case. It could have been subtle, but still significant. While Justice Sotomayor said that this was an issue worth exploring, it just wasn't time for the Supreme Court to hear the matter just yet. It needed more time in the lower courts to develop as far as case law goes. That doesn't help Reminder Kaur, who is 71 years old and serving a life sentence. But again, that's not exactly what the Supreme Court is about. They're focused on issues of law and not one person's claims of injustice. Baldeo Tunisia also appealed, the main point being how the trial court didn't allow him to present Reminder's son as an alternative suspect. The appellate court said the trial court didn't err in excluding this testimony on and on and denied the appeal, but In the judgment, they cited a paper by David McCord about the admissibility of evidence of a third-party culprit, and he titled it, But Perry Mason Made It Look So Easy. That literally has nothing to do with this case, except I appreciate that title. I am personally more of a Matlock fan myself, but they do make it look so easy on TV when they can just point their finger and accuse someone on the stand, which is not how it's done in a court. They also have the advantage of having innocent clients, which, let's face it, Baldeo Tanasia's lawyer did not have that advantage. 
And while I believe Reminder Kaur's attorney also had a guilty client, I still think she should have gotten a new prosecution team, a new team that would have still convicted her all the same, since she's guilty, but they would have fairly convicted her without any extra advantage. Do I think Reminder's defense should have been to fess up to her role and argue cultural issues and coercive control at Baldeo's hands? Yes, I do. I think that may have gotten her a lighter sentence. I'm sure it's one of those many what-ifs she thinks about while spending her days and nights in prison. As for Preta Gabba's son, Lynn, he struggled after his mother's death. He was navigating young adulthood as an immigrant without any parent. He considered going back to India where he had his father's adoptive family, but if he did, he would have to leave Preta behind as she was buried in Maryland. He visited her grave every week and just couldn't leave her. And thanks to a supportive community, he has found a family of choice here in the United States. He continues to strive to fulfill all of those dreams his mother had for him. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Crimelines is also on YouTube, where I post two to three true crime videos a week, including an occasional after show where we go over any visuals from that week's podcast episode. Crimelines is also on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. And if you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an occasionally funny history, mystery, and true crime podcast that I co-created and write for. 